Luke chapter 22, verse 20, records a brief paragraph about our Lord in the upper room. And in that time, some of my favorite words of our Lord Jesus are recorded when he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This evening we will take the Lord's table. And if you have been born again and baptized, we invite you to take with us. We do not practice here closed communion. Closed communion would be only those who are members of this church. We practice open communion, which means those who have been born again and biblically baptized. So we would not allow you to take the Lord's table if you were sprinkled as a child. But if you have been born again, and then after that you've been baptized, you may eat with us. And we invite you to unite with us. This evening, I would like to begin a series which will take us eight months. It will only take one sermon per month when we have the Lord's table. Because I would like us to discuss the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. I hope there will be much help for you if your goal is to love Christ. If your hunger and hope is to see him in his glory and in his beauty, then I hope you will greatly anticipate these evenings. When we have been studying John 13 to 17, what we are calling this series is the last words of Jesus. More precisely, it could be called the last body of teaching. But after John 13 to 17, when he walks into the garden, and the next day at about nine o'clock in the morning, when his hands and feet are cruelly nailed, And that cross is raised up and with a thud dropped into the ground when all his bones were knocked out of joint. As the psalmist records, he then gives his last words before dying. But only our Lord, who is the king of everything, can have four or five sets of last words. John 13 to 17 is his last words, as in the last body of his teaching. The seven sayings of Christ on the cross are the last words just before he died. Acts chapter 1 is his last words before going back to heaven, because he rose from the dead, unlike you or I. Or like us, we will someday rise. But when are the real last words of Jesus in the Bible? The book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, he comes back and gives seven letters. And if you have a red letter Bible, those letters are all red. Because those are the words of the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ. And on the very last page of your Bible, you have the last, last words recorded by Jesus. But if you are one of his sheep, 
you will go to heaven and hear him. Because in Revelation chapter 2, it says, to the one who overcomes, I will give him a new name. He's going to talk with his people and fellowship with his people. His last words are not really his last because he is the eternal word who will go on into all eternity saying words that will be music to your souls and you will say, those words were so wonderful. I wish I could press replay. Do you do that with songs that you like? You can do that these days because it's all on your phones. When you are in heaven, you will hear some word or words or statement from our Lord and say, that was so beautiful. It was like I've never heard music or speech before. I wish, Lord Jesus, if I can ask for one thing, say it again. And I think sometimes he will deny us because he'll have something new to say that's even better than the previous. Here we have the seven last sayings of our Lord on the cross. And I would like to direct your attention to them. This evening, we will not read any, we will not study a single one of the sayings because I like to draw out from that statement that I just read in Luke twenty two twenty. 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I would like to show you five new demonstrations of God from our Lord Jesus' seven words. I'd like to show you that he is opening up the new covenant already on the cross. He said it 12 hours earlier in the upper room. He held up that cup to Peter and said, this cup is the new covenant. And they would have thought, well, the old covenant, that's Moses. But Jeremiah promised there was a new covenant coming. It's here. We're looking at the, the one who certifies the new covenant, this agreement. And then 12 hours later, for those disciples who had slowly pulled out of the shadows and tried to get near the foot of Golgotha and they could see that bloody form and hear his words and even now as they were terrified and felt something has to be done but didn't know what to do and they were overwhelmed with grief and fear and anger and love and all those passions came on them and they didn't know what to say or to think or to feel or to do and suddenly they heard that voice, not a croaking, weak, fallible voice. They heard something strong, like the image of all men, like the greatest, the greatest form they'd ever heard, but he's up there so mangled and abused. I'd like to tell you today that the new covenant was ratified on the cross and give you five demonstrations of it. And this should lead us to the cup and the bread. Having said that, I introduce these observations with this sentence. The persevering, unstoppable love of Jesus Christ is seen most clearly in the way he continued to work right up to the last moment of his life on earth. The persevering, unstoppable love of Christ is seen most clearly in these seven sayings. The manner in, of his giving and the time and place of his giving. Five 
elements that they were new and that the new covenant was being ratified. Number one, our Lord gives us a new view of death. A new view of death. It had been hinted at before, but now we're going to get a new view of death. I want to give you four observations under this first newness. I'll tell you up front, these four observations come from Arthur Pink. His book, Seven Sayings of Christ on the Cross, in the first chapter, all the chapters are good. You'll hear his name again and again over these next eight sermons. But here are four observations Pink made. He said, our Lord's death was natural, unnatural, preternatural, supernatural. It's a new kind of death because it was natural and unnatural, supernatural and preternatural. Let me explain what he means by that. It was a natural death, which means he really died. God can't die. That must mean he was more than God. But how can you be more than God? God is a spirit and angels are spirit. If you're going to be more than God, you've got to be a God and a man. It was a natural death. That is, he really died. He said the word, I thirst. The shortest of all the sayings on the cross. And one of the things he was teaching with that was, I am a man. I feel what you feel. It was a statement against the many false teachers who had come. Like docetism. Docetism began in the second century just after Christ died. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means appearance, to look like. Docetism says he just looked like a man, but really he wasn't. He was an angel who just put on a, a manly robe, but if you tried to touch him, maybe your finger would go through him. The docetics forgot that he said to Thomas after his death, put your hand Put your hand right here in the fingerprints, in the nail prints. Put your hand right on my side. Does a spirit have flesh and bone as you see me have? It was a natural death. And this is only possible if he were a man. Let me give you now a quote from John Owen that will be worth your drive out tonight. I've given this to you before, but you need to hear it about once a month. So here's this month's recitation of John Owen. Quote, let us get it fixed in our souls and in our minds that the glory of Christ in his incarnation is the best. Okay, did you hear that? Let us get it fixed in our minds that the glory of Christ when, in what way? That means when he became a man, that God becomes a man. The fact that God became a man, let's get this fixed in our mind. The glory of Christ when God became a man, that glory. Not the glory of Christ when he died for sinners. Not the glory of Christ when he's coming back in glory. Not the glory of Christ when he prays for millions and hundreds of millions of people at the same time. Not the glory of Christ when he forgives you, though you constantly fall back. Not the glory of Christ that held him with love on the cross. Not the glory of Christ and his miracle and his power, but the glory of Christ when God and man were somehow combined. Owen says this, it is the best 
the most noble, the most useful, beneficial object. Four things. It's the best, most noble, most useful, and most beneficial. That means it helps you the most. It is the most helpful object that we can think about or cleave to in our hearts. That is amazing for a man who wrote those words in his late 70s when he's called the Prince of the Puritans. And he wrote dozens of books, including a six-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. This is a man who knew God, John Owen. And when John Owen comes to die, he writes his last book called The Glory of Christ. That was my book of the year last year. It's a fantastic book. You can get the short version for 200 pages or the real one for about 350. Either one's good. And in that book, he says this, I've looked at all the glories of Christ, but the best, most noble, most useful for you as a Christian is to think about how he was both God and it was a natural death, but it was also unnatural. How so? Because death is a penalty for sin. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, the soul that sins must die Ezekiel 18, verse 20, he says it again at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. It's only sinners who die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Only sinners die. People who aren't sinners are exempted from the category of dyers. Why then did he die? That's not natural. It's not normal. It's not customary. It's not the way things should go. It's not according to the law unless... Unless somehow sin was counted to him. That's not natural either. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. Even though it shouldn't be because they know what it is to slit an animal's throat and to put its hand, their hands on its head and have their guilt transferred to that animal. But they still say it's unnatural to impute guilt to Jesus. You don't read your own book. It's difficult for Muslims who say you can't impute You can't count sin on Jesus and you can't count his righteousness on us. And to the Muslims, I would simply say, if you can't count sin to him and you can't count righteousness to us, then you are going to hell because the Quran repeatedly says that sinners go to hell. I started listing how many times in the Quran it says sinners go to hell and I stopped listing it because it was just filling up the back cover of the book. It's almost every other page. It's not like the Bible that mentions hell just a few times. It is constant in the Quran. And who goes to hell? It is explicit. Sinners go to hell. And if you can't have your sin taken away and put on someone else, you are going to feel what your book promises. There are three imputations in the Bible. Does anyone know the first one? The Quran? Adam's sin is counted to all his people. The second imputation is what? Our sins were counted on Christ. And the third imputation, Lloyd? The third counting, Colin? His righteousness was counted on us. His righteousness is counted to us. Those are the three imputations in Scripture, and all true Christians must hold to those. This is not a Baptist thing, a Bible thing, a Presbyterian thing, a Reformed thing. If you don't hold to those, how can you be saved? That you're guilty because Adam fell, 
And that you took your sin and put it on Christ. And that Christ, out of his grace and love and mercy, put his love and his righteousness on you. If you don't believe that, how can you dare to take the name Christian? I wonder how many people even know of those today in this town. But they call themselves Christians. He died unnaturally. Because it's unnatural to have sin counted to you. He died preternaturally. Preter means before. It happened before. Preternaturally. Before nature, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. We, we heard that sermon today. And I thought of the sermon tonight. That not only is he the lamb slain, but he was counted as slain before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. In one of the strongest verses on sovereign salvation and election in the Bible, 2 Timothy 1, 9 says that Christ called his people in Christ Jesus from before the ages began. We were called in Christ before the ages. How could we be called in Christ before the ages unless it was counted as Acts 2 verse 23 says that he went to die according to the predestined plan of God. Before history, he was counted as slain or else the Old Testament believers could not have been saved. Have you ever wondered how Abraham was saved or Adam? How did Adam, are we going to see Adam again? We will. How? Because before the world began, the father counted that his son was slain. And he looked at Adam and said, Adam, you are a sinner. And my son has not died yet, but he will die one day. So I'm going to let you hide in him before it happens. His death was preternatural before that. And finally, his death was supernatural. By supernatural, I mean miraculous not merely providential. We studied that this morning, God's providence. It was miraculous in what way? Many ways, but let me just give you a few hints. It was miraculous in that it fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. It fulfilled those prophecies in unusual ways, like the virgin birth. It fulfilled those prophecies in unusual ways when Christ laid down his life. A passage we'll look at in just a moment. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18. Repeatedly, our Lord says, No one takes my life. I lay it down when I want. Are you able with a word to kill yourself? Are you able to say, I'm ready to die and have your life be taken from you? Are you able to say with a word, the time is done, and then you come back to life? This was not a normal death. We're going to see in the last one of the seven sayings that when he was done, when he finished his time, not the Jews, and Pink brings this out, that it says on the last of the seven statements, it says he cried with a loud voice so that no one would ever think he's gasping out in some kind of faulting voice. Oh, oh. I give my spirit to you as if he's just barely with the, with the football falling across the line. Oh no. He carried the whole opposing team on his shoulders and walked at his own leisure across the line and said, I'm done now. It was a supernatural death. And by this, he gives us a new view of death. What is this view? 
It's that he is the undisputed conqueror and champion. Let all fear of death be thrown away when you hear these seven sayings. Because these seven sayings are not done by someone, as Kenneth Copeland said, this despicable and blasphemous phrase that I, I only say so that you will learn to hate false teachers. This morning, when I asked a few people, is it difficult for you to count false teachers as false prophets who are lost and children of Satan? And two different people said, yes, it's very hard for me to do that. Then let me give you some of their blasphemous gutter talk. Kenneth Copeland said that when Jesus died, he had a, quote, wormy, emaciated, little spirit. He will answer to the God of the Bible for that. For one whose glory is unparalleled and unimaginable, for one who says, my glory and beauty is so infinite that your words can't take it, your sermons can't carry it, your minds can't conceive of it, which is why he says, eye has not not seen nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The things he has prepared is not bigger mountains and nicer tables to eat. The things he has prepared is your eyes, your new eyes, so that you will be able to somehow take in and perceive the beauty of God in his son. And you're going to be experiencing that every single day, if day there be. He gives a new view of death. But he gives us a new view of time. Seven times he says on the cross, listen to what he says. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We call that a prayer, don't we? He's praying even at the end. What would we be doing? We'd be just trying to, somehow, how can I get through this? All right, I'm suffering. It's all right for me to indulge in some bitterness or some anger or some cursing at the people who are laughing at me even now. He doesn't do that. He has a new view of time. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished, and into your hands I commend my spirit. He shows us that every single moment is valuable. Not only was he bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders, not only was he enduring something that our minds cannot grasp, but we'll try to in about four sermons. Somehow a separation, a rift in that which cannot be separated. Somehow some kind of jagged line drawn between father and son. It can't happen, but it did somehow happen. He was experiencing that. He was doing the greatest of all things. He was fulfilling his work that he came to do. John 17 verse 4, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. He was doing that on the cross. And even while doing that, he said, time is still so valuable that I am going to glorify my father and instruct my people with these words. Brothers and sisters, let us not ever waste our time. Number three, he gives us a new view of prayer. How many of the statements are prayers? I'll read them to you again. You tell me, how many are prayers? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
I thirst. It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. How many of those are prayers? Three of them. The first and the last and the fourth. Perhaps there's chiasm here. The beginning, the mountain peak, and the end. The first, the middle, and the last are prayers. But if you'll notice these prayers, every one of them is urgent. That is, he prays for nothing minor. He does not waste his words like we sometimes do and speak about having a good day. He does not merely toss out words like I did when I was a child. I was taught to pray. Dear Jesus, please bless Daddy and Mommy and the whole world. He does not throw away words because every word is valuable. And notice that these prayers are especially helpful. They're the kinds of things that are most essential. Forgive murderers. Reveal your purposes to me, God. Receive my spirit at my death. And they're deeply personal. When our Lord prayed, he revealed prayer in an even more intimate revelation than David did. David in his Psalms, as Spurgeon says, reveals to us the true nature of man's emotions. And our Lord is better than David, his ancient father. He's the greater son of the lesser sire. He's the real king because in just a few words, he puts more real personality and urgent life into his prayers than David did into his 79 psalms he wrote, at least. Fourthly, our Lord gives us a new view of love. How many of these sayings have to do with some explicit demonstration of concern for others? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. How many of those have to deal with love? You could say all of them. He gives us a new view of love because he places personal comfort and personal desires below the greater good of the glory of God and the mission that he came for. He also prays for his enemies. He also evangelizes. He's the evangelist even reaching sinners moments before he sees the sinner In heaven. Finally, I'd like to show to you that he gives us a new view of God himself. And this will really set the tone for the Lord's table tonight and for all the sermons coming in the future. When Jesus died on the cross, he spoke those seven words. And 
at first, as I was meditating and praying on this, I wrote down seven new revelations about God. But then I realized I missed half of the glory because not only does Jesus reveal new glories about the Father while he's speaking on the cross, he reveals new glories about himself. Isn't that the wonder of Christ? He can speak in such a way that it's directed toward the Father and shows you something glorious about himself. So let me list these in a dozen or so new glories of God before we go to the table. He shows God as a prayer answering God. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That prayer was answered. Come back next month. He shows God as a prayer answering God. Today you will be with me in paradise because the thief prayed to him and said, Lord, remember me. It's a prayer answering God. That's the Father. He's a prayer answering God because 12 hours earlier in John chapter 17, Jesus had said, Father, I will that you would reveal my glory to them. And he's doing that through this on the cross. He shows that God is a prayer answering God. He shows that Jehovah is a sinner forgiving God. Are you a sinner? You really are in a very good position when you see that you're a sinner. But even more, when you see that you're such a sinner, God can never save you. You're really in the most perfect position. Like on a tennis racket, when the ball hits right in the center, they call it the sweet spot because the ball responds with the greatest amount of, of control and power on the return. You're really in the perfect position when you feel that you're a sinner And then you feel that you are too great a sinner to be saved. Because when you feel that, then you look to the God who loves to save thieves and murderers on the cross. You look to the God who even prays for his murderers. The ones who are killing him. Not just for any generic murder, but the ones who are inflicting the pain on him. He's a sinner forgiving God. He's more than that, but he's a sinner seeking God. About 40 years ago in Chicago where I was from, a businessman named Bill Hybels sent out a letter, a survey, to people in the greater Chicagoland area asking them, why don't you go to church? They answered, and he compiled all their answers and took the top three, and he built a church based on the top three answers. Bill Hybels then was joined by Rick Warren in California, And those men began what is called the seeker-sensitive movement. They've written many books. There's a South African Willow Creek Association. In In that movement, the idea is this. There's many people out there who are seeking for God. But they can't find God because the church is cold. The church has long sermons that distract them. The church says words like propitiation and justification. And how could any sinner ever understand that? And the church talks about hell and that frightens them away. They want to come to God, but hell. So the seeker-sensitive movement was built on the idea that there's a lot of people out there just trying to seek God. But the church is making it too hard to get to him. So they said, let's build churches that make it easy for the seekers to get in. The truth is that there's only one seeker, 
And his name is God. And he has a son who on the cross showed, I'm still seeking sinners. He's a sinner seeking God. He's more than that. He's a family loving God. He didn't forget his mother. He didn't forget his friends. He remembers them because when he comes back from the dead, he's going to give a promise to the disciples and the first sermon they preach, Peter's going to say, the call, the call is to you and to your children. Don't think I forgot the children. I didn't forget them. If you forget your children, you're not godly because he's demonstrating even on the cross, he's a family loving God. He loves to save families. Moms and dads go in fasting and prayer, but with real confidence before the throne of grace. Isn't that the verse we just memorized last week? Hebrews 4.16. Let us draw boldly to the throne of grace. We'll find help and comfort there. Go to the throne of grace and say, oh God, give me my children. Save my little girl. It's her birthday today. Go and pray for her. He will hear because he's a family loving God. And he commonly saves families. Plead with him to give you all of your children. And pray now for your grandchildren. Ask God to give you a godly heritage and a godly seed. Psalm 78 verses 5 and 6 say, That's what he gives his word for. Not just to save you, but your children and the children not yet born. Pray that way. What else does he reveal about God but that he is a sin-hating God? What else could cause the rift? He's a sin-hating God. But more than that, he's a wrath-bearing God. The world hates this. In that survey I mentioned a moment ago about that man in Chicago, one of the things they found in the survey was people don't like to hear wrath or sin. So in the seeker-sensitive movement, some of their books even say this, don't mention wrath or anger or judgment. But Jesus did on the cross. You would have a hard time preaching on the seven sayings of Christ on the cross if you were in a seeker-sensitive movement. He's a wrath-bearing God. He's also the incarnate God. We saw that already. He says, I thirst. God is a spirit. How can a spirit have thirst? Because he was more than God. He was the God-man. He's a plan-making God. It is finished. You can't say it's finished unless you know what was done. You can't have something to do unless you had a previous thought about it. He's a plan-making God, which is why it says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 that we were chosen in Him from before the foundation of the world. And two verses later it says we were adopted in the Beloved in Christ, this was done. Oh, this, this, this will make your mind spin. This will do great wonders for your imagination to ponder and to think, how can these things happen? This will stretch your imagination in the right way. Ponder how God, before the world began, had the plan for his son to die for sinners like you. He's also a work finishing God. It is finished. He leaves no stone unturned. He doesn't say good enough. 
He doesn't say, as my father commonly said growing up, my father would often say, close enough for government work. He meant if I had a tender from the government, they would let me stop just here. Jesus never said that. The government of the kingdom of heaven finishes the work down to the details. As we'll see when we go on in this series. He's a promise keeping God. Psalm 73 verse 24 said. Um, I've suddenly forgotten it. Oh, you will receive my spirit into glory. That was written by Asaph, David's friend. And Asaph didn't know that he was prophesying about the Lord Jesus. Psalm 73, 24, he's a promise-keeping God. He made that promise hundreds of years earlier. And finally, he's a sovereign God. In the last statement, I give up my spirit. And I've already mentioned John 10, 14 to 18, where he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I take it back again. Friends, the death of Christ is the topic that we have a great interest in because our soul's eternal destination is depending on this death. And these seven statements reveal something about who he is. So I invite you to come. Come and welcome to the table. Eat with us and enjoy the grace of God. Think much of your Savior Think first of your sin and then throw it down and look to the cross and look your eyes away. And get the thought of the Son of Man, the Man of Sorrows, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, living and dying for you. Let's close in prayer.